0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Well, this week, we're finally moving on from Ancient Egypt. Hooray. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Egyptian history, and I loved making Season 1, but I was starting to get tired of it, and the end of the Old Kingdom seemed like a great ending point for the first season. The point of this podcast was to make a linear, narrative retelling of the underappreciated history of Africa, and while Egypt is in Africa... It's hard to call it underappreciated. Well, this week, we're finally moving south to tell the story of the origins of one of Africa's greatest civilizations, Ethiopia. Now, without further ado, let's begin. So, if you've taken a 101 course, you know that annoying introduction that all professors do on the first day of class, where they define the title of the course. Taking Psychology 101? Well, they pace around the room for a little bit and ask, What is psychology? You know the deal. Well, before we carry on with Ethiopian history, we must define, what is Ethiopia? This question might seem straightforward, but it's a surprisingly complex question. Ethiopia, as you might know, is not an East African word. Rather, it comes from an entirely different continent, being a word of Greek origin. It meant burnt face, and was used as a general catch-all term for all of Sub-Saharan Africa. From this term comes the name of the modern Federal Republic of Ethiopia, the multi-ethnic nation that currently exists in East Africa. So, is Ethiopian history the history of this modern nation? Or is it the history of the historically dominant Amaric people who have traditionally ruled over Ethiopia? What about sites important to the culture and history of Ethiopia that might exist in the current nations of Eritrea, Djibouti, or Somalia? This is an especially touchy subject when you add the ethnic and international conflicts of modern East Africa, basically being the African version of discussions of Israel and Palestine. For this podcast, the Ethiopian civilization we'll learn about is the general civilizational history of the Ethiopian highlands and its surroundings. I'll be using the term Ethiopia to refer to the grander civilizational history from which the modern states of Ethiopia and Eritrea arise. The borders of this civilization will fluctuate over time, and shouldn't be conflated with the border of modern countries in East Africa. Now, with that very long preface out of the way, let's begin. For real this time. Episode 11, East Africa's Civilizational Stage. So, as with last season, before we get into the juicy history itself, we'll need to do some geographical stage setting. Like every civilization, Ethiopia's origins are shaped by its geography. If you recall all the way back to the very first episode of the podcast, eastern Africa is dominated by three distinct climate zones. To the north lies the Nubian Desert, an uninhabitable wasteland of sand, in which only the banks of the Nile River act as a life-giving bastion. To the south and east is also a long stretch of desert, wrapping around the east African coast from southern Eritrea until central Somalia. Now, this land is nowhere near the death trap of the Nubian Desert, and people did actually live here but only in the sparsely populated, scattered villages that such an unforgiving climate would allow. Now, the third region, the Ethiopian highlands, is our main point of interest. Much like how the Nile River was the mother of Egyptian and Nubian civilization, so too are the Ethiopian highlands the mother of Ethiopian civilization. Ethiopia is only a few hundred miles north of the equator, and if not for the cooling high altitudes of its mountains, it would be one of the hottest regions on earth. Because of the mountain's high altitude, though, Ethiopia enjoys mild temperatures year-round despite its equatorial location. Addis Ababa, a city in the Ethiopian highlands, enjoys temperatures that range from 50 degrees Fahrenheit during an especially cold day to 80 degrees on an especially hot day. That's 10 to 26 degrees Celsius for you non-Americans or Bahamanians out there. The Ethiopian mountains also provide a precious resource in an otherwise dry region, water. Usually, the highlands receive an ample monthly rainfall of about an inch or 2.4 centimeters. This is not especially wet or dry, and is actually pretty similar to the amount of rainfall enjoyed in cities like Milan or Tokyo. But every year, the Belg and Meher, the Ethiopian monsoon seasons, arrive, and the Ethiopian highlands receive about 8 inches or 20 centimeters of rain per month, and with it, an explosion of agricultural growth. That's more monthly rain during this period than is in the Amazon rainforest, for example. Now, huge amounts of rainfall are not always an indicator of how receptive a region is to the development of advanced civilizations. It can create runoff that can damage infrastructure, or aid the growth of foliage that can make transportation and construction difficult. But, thanks to the high elevation, the air is too thin to support the growth of these encumbering rainforests. Water runoff simply flows down into the mountain valleys, and into the rivers Nile, Juba, and Shabelle, rather than causing devastating floods. Mother Nature, though, has a sense of humor. These blessings that she gave to the land of Ethiopia were also blessings to the land that would eventually become its greatest rival. The Juba and Shabelle are two long rivers that flow from the Ethiopian mountain range into the low plains of southern Somalia. These rushing waters carry minerals vital for agricultural production to the land south of Ethiopia. While most of Somalia is harsh and arid, this southern plain is relatively fertile and would thus become the cradle of Somali civilization. Telling the story of Ethiopia without the story of Somalia is impossible. Somalia is to Ethiopia what Nubia was to Egypt. Throughout their millennia of interaction, the Somali and Ethiopian civilizations would sometimes be friendly trade partners, sometimes bitter rivals, and sometimes anything else in between. But trust me, we'll be hearing more about this relationship later. East Africa is also located at an incredibly important juncture of global trade, where the Red Sea meets the Indian Ocean. The lands of Southern Arabia and Eastern Africa come together to form a narrow strait, known as the al Mandeb. This strait, only about 16 miles or 26 kilometers wide at its narrowest point, is an incredibly important site for global trade, as whoever controls this strait of water can control which goods can enter the Red Sea and charge a premium to get them through. For goods from China, India, or Indonesia to reach the Mediterranean, or vice versa, they would have to go through this narrow strait. This won't be especially important early in our story, as the earliest societies didn't have access to ships that could navigate the vast Indian Ocean yet, but trust me, this will be an incredibly important topic in many of our future episodes. But what kind of people would come to inhabit this fertile and strategically positioned land? Well, anatomically modern humans have lived in Ethiopia for around 200,000 years at this point. They were, like everyone else at the time, hunter-gatherers and spoke an early language known as Proto-Afroasiatic, the ancestral tongue of all modern Afroasiatic languages. In the mountains of Ethiopia, this language would gradually split into two distinct categories. Throughout most of East Africa, proto afroasiatic would gradually evolve into a language known as proto cushitic which itself would branch into the ancestors of the modern languages of East Africa. The southwestern highlands of Ethiopia, though, were isolated from their neighbors, and therefore enjoyed only minimal contact with outsiders in the prehistoric era. Left to their own devices, these people would develop their languages in a totally different direction. Eventually, their new language, Proto-Emotic, was completely different from the other Afro-Asiatic languages, and would become the ancestor of the modern Emotic languages of southwestern Ethiopia. Now, 6,000 years ago, our story can truly begin, as this is when the first evidence of agricultural settlement in East Africa begins. We've gone over the transition from hunter-gatherers into agricultural societies before in our episode on pre-dynastic Egypt, so I'll try not to exhaustively repeat myself. In short summary, nomadic hunter-gatherers realize that the leftover seeds of wild grains will grow back if replanted after consumption, and they adapt their lifestyle around this. The hunter-gatherers begin living a semi-nomadic lifestyle, in which they regularly migrate between a couple of grain fields. Eventually, they'll come to rely more and more on this grain until they decide to abandon the concept of migration altogether, and decide that dedicating resources to protecting one field of grain is more efficient than migrating between two. And just like that, Bada-bing, bada-boom, you're a settled Neolithic people. Now, normally I wouldn't even mention this, if not for the fact that Ethiopia's transition was a little unusual compared to the rest of the world. You see, Ethiopia transitioned from semi-nomadic to a settled agrarian lifestyle incredibly quickly compared to other regions, with an incredibly short transition period. In China, the transition from rice cultivation to full agrarian settlements took about 1,200 years. In the Middle East, this took about a thousand, but in the Ethiopian highlands, this transition only took about 500. So why did Ethiopia transition from semi-nomadic to settled lifestyles so much faster than everyone else? Did the semi-nomadic peoples of the region just come to the conclusion of, you know, let's just settle here permanently, faster than everyone else for some reason? Well not exactly. The true answer lies in the species of grain that they grow. Unlike the Egyptians, who relied on a species of grain known as the Khorasan grain, the Ethiopians were lucky enough to cultivate a different species, called Indian lovegrass. Indian lovegrass has some of the smallest seeds of any edible grain, and was thus easy to plant quickly and in large quantities. Ethiopia also had much more total arable land than places like Egypt and Mesopotamia, and therefore larger quantities of grain could be planted over wider swaths of farmland. Once these proto-Cushitic peoples had fully embraced the agrarian lifestyle, they continued to stay ahead of the curve. They became one of the first people to selectively breed a staple crop, selecting only the largest and most abundant seeds of lovegrass to replant. Through generations of selective breeding, they created a new crop called teff. Teff is an interesting staple crop, not only for its ease of planting but also its nutritional value, containing an unusual abundance of protein for a grain. Teff throughout Ethiopian history, and still to this day, plays the same role as wheat in the Western and Middle Eastern cultures, or rice in East Asian cultures. It's a staple crop, used to make injera, a unique form of unleavened bread, or teff porridge, and, of course, beer. Like in Egypt, the advent of agriculture was tied to the formation of agricultural settlements. As the population grew with the stable food supply, These settlements became city-states, and the leaders of these city-states became lords. Almost nothing is known about the culture, political hierarchy, or religion of these settlements. Unlike in Egypt, conflicts between these cities was relatively rare. In Egypt, arable land is very productive, but incredibly scarce, limited entirely to the banks of the Nile River. Farmland was thus something that was incredibly precious and worth fighting over. But in Ethiopia, where arable land was more widespread, It wasn't the same immensely valuable resource. Does your city need to plant another field? Well, why fight your neighbor for it when you can just move somewhere else and claim the plentiful unused land there? In Egypt, land ownership became increasingly consolidated under a few powerful nomarchs in their cities. Ethiopia experienced the opposite. Its cities were smaller and spread more sparsely throughout the highlands, with the only large urban centers appearing in the northern foothills in modern Eritrea. These cities, known as Agordat and Kohaito, which I'm sure I'm not pronouncing right, hosted a flourishing culture of urban city dwellers. Not all East Africans chose to adopt the lifestyle of settled agriculture, though. Instead, they transitioned from hunter-gatherers into a group we haven't talked about yet in this podcast, but it will certainly come up a lot in the future. Pastoral nomads. Unlike settled people, pastoral nomads don't rely on fields of cultivated crops to feed themselves, Instead, they travel between grazing lands, with herds of domesticated animals, mostly cows and goats, and use these animals as their main source of sustenance. This lifestyle never appeared in any major sense in Egypt, as there simply wasn't enough grazing land to support pastoral herds. However, you may recall that their neighbors, the Libyans, were an important source of cattle for ancient Egypt, and thus likely practiced a nomadic pastoralist lifestyle. In Ethiopia, These nomads would also sometimes make stops in the agrarian settlements, bartering for goods to resell at another settlement. These nomadic herdsmen, like in the rest of the world, would eventually come to have an outsized impact on Ethiopian history, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. This decentralized settlement pattern, with agrarian city-states dotting the landscape and nomads crossing the countryside in between, would remain the status quo for the next few thousand years. Ancient Egyptian records from this time, though, indicate that Egypt would begin a burgeoning trade relationship with the city-states of East Africa, which they called Punt. Now Punt is an enigmatic historical creation, with the only references of its existence coming from Egyptian records. Even the location of Punt itself is still something of a mystery. East Africa is only the most commonly held belief, with some historians believing that Punt was actually located in modern-day Yemen, the Arabian Red Sea coast, coastal Sudan, or even the island of Sri Lanka. However, one engraving from the temple of Middle Kingdom pharaoh Hatshepsut seems to support the East African hypothesis. The Egyptians sent these expeditions to Punt with the intent to trade, returning to Egypt with many exotic goods. Egyptian carvings from this expedition depict merchants returning with leopard pelts, ebony wood, frankincense, and ivory. But, interestingly, they also bring a menagerie of wild animals to parade around Egypt. The most prominent of these are cheetahs, giraffes, lions, and elephants. While these animals are solely located in the savannas of Africa today, at the time they wouldn't have been an uncommon sight in southern Arabia either. However, in the crowd of the impressive megafauna lies an unassuming, easy-to-overlook bird. This unimpressive bird, though, is the key to our understanding of the location of the land of Punt, as it appears to be a secretary bird. These long-legged, Snake-eating birds are native only to sub-Saharan Africa, and there is no evidence that they've ever lived in southern Arabia, Sri Lanka, or the coastal deserts of Sudan. Thanks to our reptile-eating friend, we can conclude with confidence that Punt is located at least in part in East Africa. It's also likely that Punt was just a catch-all term used by Egyptians to mean faraway lands, and thus both southern Arabia and East Africa would be considered Puntites by the ancient Egyptians thus making the location of Punt even more convoluted. However, the question of the location of Punt is only the beginning compared to questions about the mysterious people who inhabited it. Who were the Puntites? What was their culture like? What kind of government did they have? What religion did they practice? These are all questions to which we do not know the answer. In all likelihood, Punt was not the name of a specific kingdom or state but was instead a vague geographical term, meant to point more to a general region rather than a specific kingdom. From around 3000 to 2400 BC, trade between the Puntites and Egyptians flowed largely down the Nile River. The Puntites would send barges full of myrrh, ostrich feathers, ivory, or other luxury goods and barges down the river. This was an easy, but expensive way to trade, as the various tribes and city-states of Nubia charged a premium to let these goods go through their territory. There was also the threat of banditry, which could result in whole trade shipments being lost. By the time these goods would reach Egypt, their price was through the roof. To promote a more efficient trade between the two lands, the old kingdom pharaoh Sahura arranged the first naval expedition directly to Punt. Egyptian ships sailed down the Red Sea, bypassing Nubia altogether, and then sailed directly back to Egypt with Puntite goods in tow. This new burgeoning relationship was incredibly economically beneficial to both the Egyptians and Puntite city-states, as the Puntites could sell in higher quantity, which the Egyptians would buy at a cheaper price. Punt was also tied into a larger burgeoning trade network across the ancient world. Through their direct trade routes with Egypt, the Puntites would gain indirect access to goods from Crete, Libya, and the Near East. Due to the lack of evidence of centralized authority, it is likely that Punt was home to many independent city-states, rather than one unified kingdom. Some Egyptian records make reference to the existence of some kind of monarchy in the region, specifically in the context of diplomatic visits to Egypt, but this was more likely a king of Punt, one of many. Or maybe a monarch who claimed dominion over all cities, but had little real influence over their affairs. The trade between Egypt and the Puntites continued for hundreds of years and it appears that this interaction with Egypt also had quite an impact on the Puntites themselves. With each depiction in Egyptian art, the Puntites look increasingly Egyptian in their manner of dress and hairstyles. By the new kingdom, Punt was growing increasingly absorbed into the Egyptian sphere of influence, with the pharaohs even demanding tribute payments from Puntite lords. But suddenly, this trade stopped. In 1200 BC, for reasons unknown, the contact between Punt and Egypt completely ceased. From this time on, there is no archaeological or textual evidence of any further expeditions to Punt, or any trade goods in Punt arriving in Egypt. In Egyptian literature, Punt would go from being a very real place to being used as a metaphor for a far-flung location. Later, it became something of a myth a land of plenty where the gods walked among men. It was a bedtime story, a vague recalling of a distant memory, and no longer a real, concrete location in the minds of the Egyptian people. How or why Egypt lost contact with Punt is a total mystery, and I mean total. While writing this script, I spent about six hours looking for any scholarly source that provided evidence on why Egypt broke its trade contact with the Puntites, and all I found was cobwebs and dust. It doesn't seem like there's much scholarly interest in the subject, or that those scholars who have looked didn't find anything, which is a shame. But, maybe I overlooked something. So, if anyone can find me a scholarly article or book that offers any explanation or reasonable speculation on this topic, please send it to the podcast's email. But, while I couldn't find any scholarly opinion, I do have my own speculation on what happened. You see, as Egypt's influence in Punt was receding, a new power was taking its place as the dominant presence in the Southern Red Sea. In Southern Arabia, a new power was rising, and forcing Egyptian merchants out of their area of influence in Punt. These were the Sabaeans, a people from modern Yemen. And trust me, this won't be the last we hear from them. Join us next week as we witness the rise of the Sabaean Kingdom and see how they shape the future of East Africa. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.